KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Kinsey Moreland in for Annika Colbert. It's Monday, December 21st. KPBS has obtained records that show the location of all COVID-19 outbreaks in San Diego County since March. We'll hear what those records show. But first, let's do the headlines. The last three days of COVID-19 numbers have been grim. On Friday, San Diego County reported another record number of cases, 3,611. Saturday, the county reported 2,509 new coronavirus cases. And on Sunday, our county added another 3,493 new infections. The county's totals are now nearly 123,000 cases and 1,280 deaths. Meanwhile, a San Diego judge cleared the way last Wednesday for restaurants to reopen for more than just takeout. And some local eateries immediately did just that. They reopened right away. But then two days later on Friday, an appeals court stayed that decision after lawyers for the state filed an emergency challenge. So restaurants must again abide by the state's health orders and cease indoor and outdoor dining immediately. But some restaurants have decided to stay open despite the latest judgment. Some owners making public statements about their refusals to follow the orders. The original lawsuit behind all the opening and closing confusion, by the way, was filed by two San Diego strip clubs, which originally won the right to remain open. Lawyers in that case have until Wednesday to file any opposition to the state's latest filing. From KBBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. In an exclusive investigation, KPBS has obtained records that show the specific locations of all COVID-19 outbreaks in San Diego County since March. Until now, public health officials have obscured the exact names of where the outbreaks were happening, instead just saying they occurred in places like restaurants, businesses, or childcare settings. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser says the records show how outbreaks have hit everywhere from churches and restaurants to big box stores. In short, if you've gone out at all since the pandemic first struck, you quite likely walked into a place where an outbreak occurred. Uh, yes, so I'll be here in the morning time yeah, to avoid the crowded people. Il Ho Hong was dressed in a mask and plastic gloves while shopping last week at the Walmart on College Avenue. He's worried about catching COVID-19 while in the store. If we are aware that previously they have someone in there, maybe 
I'm not going to use the store. Maybe I'm going to use the other store, maybe. Han didn't know it, but that Walmart did have an outbreak at the end of October with at least 24 cases. It was one of 14 different outbreaks at local Walmarts since the start of the pandemic. Like Hong, if you've gone out at all since the pandemic first struck, you quite likely walked into a place that's had an outbreak. That's according to a KPBS analysis of more than 1,000 outbreak records dating from March through the end of November. At least 208 outbreaks have hit restaurants. Popular chain restaurants like Olive Garden, Cheesecake Factory, Denny's, and the Broken Yolk Cafe have each had multiple outbreaks. At least 125 outbreaks have occurred in large retailers and grocery stores like Costco, Target, Home Depot, Trader Joe's, and Walmart, according to the records KPBS obtained. A Walmart spokeswoman responded in a statement that the retailer has taken steps to make the shopping experience as safe as possible. During this challenging time, we're working to balance health and safety concerns while still meeting the needs and expectations of our customers and associates, she said. However, just because you visited a place that had an outbreak doesn't necessarily mean you were exposed to the virus and doesn't mean you can catch COVID-19 by going there now. An outbreak means three or more people with COVID-19 who aren't close contacts were in that place over the same 14-day period. It's possible none of them caught the virus at the outbreak location. Being the site of an outbreak doesn't necessarily mean the businesses had unsafe practices. Also, the records reviewed by KPBS don't reveal whether employees or patrons were infected. That means it's hard to say how the virus might have spread, says UC San Diego epidemiologist Rebecca Fielding-Miller. If it's nine, let's say nine staff members who are like all working in the kitchen together and you have nine people test positive within a 14-day window, my initial assumption would be that those are connected. Um, on the other hand, if you have nine people report that they happen to be in a Walmart um, in Chula Vista within a 14-day window because they were grocery shopping, that I think you would have to narrow down to a much more specific window. Like you'd have to be able to say those people were all grocery shopping between 2 and 5 p.m. On, a, on Wednesday. She also says context is important. A higher number of outbreaks at retail chains is likely partly because they have multiple locations, more customers, and more employees. So you wouldn't say, oh, Otay Mesa has only had one outbreak, but Denny's has had five, therefore Otay Mesa is safer. But the records do show you're far more likely to be exposed to an outbreak based on your living circumstances or your behavior. For example, 24% of all the outbreaks occurred in nursing homes, jails, rehab facilities, and shelters. At least 136 outbreaks occurred in just five lower-income zip codes in East and South County, which have high numbers of essential workers. And at least 86 outbreaks happened in the Pacific Beach and Gasland zip codes, two of the county's biggest party spots. This is the first time the public has seen the list of specific outbreak locations for San Diego County. County officials have kept them secret, instead only listing outbreaks by category such as bar slash restaurant or business. 
KPBS obtained these records, and county officials have thus far refused to comment on our findings. When KPBS and other news outlets sued to get the records, the county argued that businesses and other organizations would not report outbreaks if detailed records were made public. We lost that lawsuit, but are appealing. Frontline employees and union representatives interviewed by KPBS agree that detailed outbreak records should be made public. Who feels safe at work when they're dealing with the public? Um, no, they're very afraid. Jaime Vasquez is with the union that represents Costco employees. Especially now with the Christmas shopping, uh, you have packed uh, warehouses almost on a daily basis. He says Costco is allowing half capacity, but argues it should be classified as retail, which would keep it to 20%. The store did not respond to a request for comment. Devin Hannigan works as a supervisor at Vons on Balboa Avenue. He says it's important for the public to know where outbreaks are happening. Every man and woman who works for this company should be able to evaluate their own risk and be able to come up with an idea of what's too much. And that story from KBBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. To search our database of outbreak records, go to kpbs.org slash outbreaks. KBBS investigative assistant Katie Stiegel contributed to this report. San Diego County healthcare workers received the first doses of a COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer last week, and a second emergency-approved COVID-19 vaccine developed by Moderna should be heading our way soon. County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten and Health and Human Services Director Nick Maschione spoke with KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. They provided an update on the rollout and discuss what challenges are ahead. How has the rollout gone so far? So far, it's gone uh, very well. Uh, as you know, we've gotten just over 28,000 doses. And the vaccinations came into the county because this Pfizer vaccine had to be stored in an ultra uh, low temperature freezers. So uh, the state uh, identified three what we call pre-positioned locations, which include UCSD, Rays, and the county. And the county uh, accepted the vaccinations for those facilities or healthcare systems that did not have that freezer capacity. Talking with um, some of the hospital CMOs, talking to my own medical director, County Psych Hospital, um, just the amazing turnout. Um, you know, we didn't know, or, you know, people are going to show up. And it's been done in a very uh, calm and orderly way, uh, but with great uh, urgency. And so uh, I can tell you, like for County Psych Hospital, in our first day when we scheduled, I think with the exception of a handful of folks that we had to reschedule, uh, almost everyone else was there. We got uh, and got their vaccine. And another encouraging um, word that I've heard healthcare providers say that the vaccines being available gives them hope. Was there an unexpected challenge, you know, that came your way? And, and how did you work around it? You know, the, the challenge is that the way the vaccine arrives um, is for us, for our hospitals, 13 hospitals or so, um, you know, four of them are getting it directly. Um, and then nine come through us. 
So it'd be nice if it was one air traffic control, but you know we have multiple. And so it, it requires that extra challenge of communicating to make sure that we're getting our fair share uh, of vaccine into the region. And so that's communicating with our hospital partners, which has, again, has worked great. Will that continue to be the case with Moderna? So right now, I don't explicitly know that, but we'll know more next week. Is that when you expect to know more about when the next Pfizer shipment would be and when the first Moderna shipment would be? Or do you have any indication of how much it could be or when for either of those vaccines? Well, if things go the same way that they went this past week with the approval process, we should get the Moderna uh, early in next week. I'm not sure exactly when the second uh, allocation for the highest risk of acute care uh, and uh, psychiatric hospital employees is coming, but we anticipate that uh, in the coming weeks. The next group in the second tier of phase 1A is skilled nursing facilities. Is that going to be handled by the county or, or the state, or is there overlap there as well? Uh, the CDC has partnered with pharmaceutical uh, industries, particularly uh, CVS and Walgreens, to provide vaccinations at long-term care facilities, including SNFs. And then the states then work with those entities in their state. So CDPH is working with uh, those two entities in California, and, and then those entities will be contacting the long-term care facilities. And if there is support that is needed by the county, then we will provide that additional support. As we speak, we have a whole team focusing on and trying to get to determine who is remaining that's not covered by the pharmacies so that we can then um, reach, and then this is an in-reach because in these facilities, they can't come to a site, right? We have to go into them. So we're working on, and we'll be releasing pretty soon, really novel approaches, activating, um, our workforce that, remember, can only be uh, uh, licensed physicians or nurses or paramedics or so forth. So being as creative in our ways of the workforce that we have to get into these facilities, many of which who do not have a nurse. And that was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento speaking with the County Health's Nick Mascione and Dr. Wilma Wooten. Tune into KPBS Midday Edition at noon today for an extended version of the interview or go to kpbs.org to see the full transcript. Coming up, the election shakeup in San Diego bodes well for the future of mass transit in the region. That story after a super quick break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Local environmentalists believe that the key goal of ending urban sprawl and finally getting people out of their cars and onto electric buses and trains is now an actual political possibility. And that is because progressive Democrats succeeded at the polls last month. So, will mass transit win out over expanded freeways? Union Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith sought answers to that question recently. And he joined KPBS Roundtable's host Mark Sauer to talk about his findings. 
Well, the central issue is density versus urban sprawl, private vehicles versus public transit. Start with an overview of the public transit projects being considered basically by Democrats. Okay, uh, long term, folks are looking at a massive new high-speed rail system, which would include things like the much-debated Purple Line running from the border through southeast San Diego all the way up to Sereno Valley. Uh, in the short term, they want to see much of what was contemplated under a, a plan laid out last year by the Metropolitan Transit System, MTS, namely expanded bus service, frequency increases along the trolley, and maybe even a trolley extension to the airport. And the competing roadway improvement projects that are favored generally by Republicans. They're open to see highway expansion projects, largely in the form of new cars and bus lanes along state routes 78, 52, 67 to name a few of them uh it should it should be said though that republicans like supervisor jim desmond have signaled support for the transit upgrades as long as they get their freeway projects and the projects were promised under the previous tax increase transnet which they point out so they say well we'll support the transit stuff as long as we get our highways yeah now it gets complicated that brings up my next question what's the cost going to be for either wave of transportation upgrades and how will the money be raised right so we're talking about a lot of money sandag has quoted the 177 billion dollar price tag over 30 years and that's a pretty significant jump from the agency's last attempt at raising taxes uh, the failed measure a from 2016 was a 40 or 18 billion dollar proposal so you can see that 177 billion dollar price tag is pretty hefty and by comparison, the MTS ballot measure that they were contemplating before the pandemic hit was a $24 billion plan. So this is this is pretty ambitious. And we should note that Sandag is, of course, the San Diego Association of Governments and controls a lot of this regional planning and uh, regional raising of money. And now we're talking about some serious money, as you say. Now, why are environmentalists hopeful that the expanded transit vision now has a chance as the political dynamic? Uh, how has that changed? Well, just in a nutshell, right, the city of San Diego and the county board of supervisors are now controlled by Democrats for the first time in modern history with two very prominent Democrats at the helms, uh, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. And this is really kind of a U-turn politically for the region. So they feel like if these guys get behind and push this thing, maybe it'll get over the finish line. And uh, you interviewed several political observers. What did they have to say? It's not maybe as cut and dried as you might think, uh, going from Republican to Democrat. Well, right, because in order for Sandag to get this thing passed, they got to get a two-thirds majority vote at the ballot box, right? 67% roughly. And that's no easy task. If Republicans come out in opposition, maybe that there's a little bit of spending, opposition spending, or really maybe all they need is a social media or talk radio campaign. Some people are concerned that they could really sink this thing. Now, I wonder how much of an either or discussion this is. Uh, don't electric cars and soon trucks, pickup trucks and and vans and such, which are getting cheaper, more popular. They're backed by state mandates. And they're going to figure into the equation since there's far more environmental friendly than internal combustion engines if we go to electric, right? Okay, uh, <laughs> follow me on this one if you can. I mean, this is something that Ron Roberts, the former supervisor and Sandag chair, used to bring up all the time. He'd say something to the effect of cars and trucks will eventually be clean, so we need to focus largely on maintaining highway infrastructure. 
However, Sandag is under pressure from state officials, namely the California Air Resources Board, to meet specific targets for cutting greenhouse gas emissions from personal automobiles. And they're pretty far from hitting that target. And the Air Board makes a big point of saying that that target takes into account uh, reductions from clean vehicles that will come online in the future. And so people like the head of Sandag, uh, Hassan Akrata, say, you know, we really got to meet these state mandates. And the only way we can do it is if we dramatically expand transit. Yeah, it's, it really does get complicated. And, uh, you know, I know there's a tremendous debate coming. But I wanted to bring in two other factors, the advent of autonomous cars, meaning fewer cars overall, plus the fact that mass telecommuting may have maybe here to stay uh, even after the COVID crisis, because so many of us are doing it like you and I right now. Now, doesn't that mean much less need for both highways and and more mass transit going forward, people um, just using fewer cars and staying home more. Well, I will not comment on what autonomous vehicles are going to do. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows how that's going to play out. But I will say that even now, at the height of the pandemic, where so many people are working remotely, we have seen highway traffic creep back up to 80, 90 percent of what it was before the lockdown started. People are still driving. They just have kind of changed their driving patterns. They go out in the middle of the day more rather than rush hour traffic. And so we're seeing that there is still strong demand for the highway system, even given the current conditions. This week, President-elect Joe Biden announced his cabinet nominees for secretaries of transportation and energy, two key positions when it comes to this topic. How's this debate likely to play out starting in 2021? Are we about to ready to tee this debate up? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, everyone's talking about how the Biden administration really is going to have to square their transportation policy with their climate change and energy policy. And the folks at Sandag are really hoping beyond hope that that means that there's going to be big federal dollars coming down for infrastructure projects like rail bus and other things like that. And with uh, Mayor Pete uh, named the new Secretary of Transportation, maybe we didn't uh, waste our time learning how to pronounce Buddha Judge after all, huh? Right. Yeah, I mean, he's putting in very progressive people, right, that are have pledged to take climate change very seriously. Sandak's pitch is once this money is ready, we're going to have to have our own sales tax in place so that we have new revenues locally to then get those federal and state matching dollars and pull them down. If we don't get this sales tax passed by, they're thinking 2022, maybe 2024, then we could miss out on a windfall if the Biden administration really is able to get all this money on the table. And that was UT environmental reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith talking with KPBS Roundtable host Mark Sauer. Search for and subscribe to our Roundtable podcast on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen. And that is all for today. Thanks as always for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.